I'm Rob Hopkins, and this is Imagination Taking Power, a podcast where I share with you conversations, insights, and aha moments on my journey towards writing a book about imagination. This is a website about the power of what if, and how, in a time of existential challenges, we might take what if ideas and make them a reality. What if we tackled climate change with imagination, courage and positivity is one such question that runs through all our blogs here. But I have been deeply impressed by the work of Daniel Raven Ellison and his efforts to try to get the City of London designated as a national park city. As we'll see, it is a powerful what-if that opens up the imagination and all manner of possibilities. Daniel describes himself as a guerrilla geographer is a National Geographic explorer, and as a former geography teacher, he has done many projects where he walks across entire cities trying to experience and represent the size of the city, the distribution of its deprivation, and other factors too. A few years ago with his son, he set out to visit all of the UK's national parks. It set him wondering why it is that across the world, every major kind of habitat and landscape are recognised within the family of national parks apart from cities. London, he reasoned, is arguably the most biologically diverse region of the UK. So why is that urban wildlife of less value than rural wildlife? Why is a city less valuable than a rainforest or a desert? It wasn't that an urban area was missing from the worldwide family of national parks, he went on to consider. It's more that national park thinking is missing from our large urban areas. And so the question of what if London were to become a national park city was born. What a great question. But not content to have just come up with a great what if question, he has spent the last four years trying to make it happen. When we chatted, I started by asking him how he then moved towards spreading that idea and trying to involve other people and trying to move towards making it a reality. Well, I wrestled with the idea for about six months before I made it public at all because it, I found the idea very challenging. I, I tested the idea with lots of people saying, well, you know, what if London was a national park? And um, a lot of people just said that it was a ridiculous idea, to be honest. But, but what was interesting was that whether or not it, it was two minutes or whether or not it was two days um, or two weeks, you know, the vast majority of people then came back and said, actually, no, that makes a lot of sense. Um, so, uh, we started doing a number of different things to open up people's imaginations. So, um, we did, did a simple petition to start with, um, asking the mayor of London to make London a national park. Actually, we want, it very quickly became that we wanted London to become a national park city, not a national park. And I can explain that in more detail. But to support that campaigning, we did things like, um, create mapping to show London as a national park started creating these sort of gorilla signs um, for footpaths and brown signs for entry parks into the, the city to start helping to unlock people's imagination around um, how an urban area could be a national park. Um, worked with uh, over 100 students from Queen Mary University London, who's part of a geography project, went right across the city, photographing it as a national park, according to the different criteria, what a national park needed to be, and then got these sort of 33 posters, one for each borough in London with lots of photography, um, put up in the mayor's office. So then the mayor of London and lots of politicians were walking past these uh, these posters every day for a few weeks, which then helped to unlock imagination further. Um, and I mean, you know, I could go through four years of campaigning, but we also did things like um, have a, a big event very early on um, at um, South Bank 
I mean, the Queen Elizabeth Hall for a few hundred people, where we just asked a question, you know, what if London was a national park? Um, and, you know, that got, you know, a few hundred people asking that question. And from there, we then crowdfunded a, uh, a newspaper proposal that was printed 30,000 times. We used the newspaper intentionally as something which would disrupt the normal lines of how, how the Internet works and would reach new people and new audiences got them to as many local councillors as possible, saying to them, you know, well, what if we made London a national park city, as we were saying it was then, um, rather than designated by the central by central government from the top down, a national park city which is declared from the grassroots up and is, um, is, is really envisioned and enacted by millions of people rather than just a few people. And crowdfunding that proposal brought even more individuals and organisations um, understanding what it was we were trying to achieve. And then we had this conversation that lasted really over the last three years of trying to recruit the majority of London's elected politicians plus the mayor of London. And the only way we could really do that was through, you know, literally thousands and thousands of conversations of, of explaining and negotiating. And a big part of that was really asking the same question, you know, what if your street, what if your ward, what if your borough, thought of itself far more as a, being part of a national park city connected to a, a much greater landscape uh, rather than in a, in a more sort of isolated isolated way. So the, the question of what if, the question of um, imagineering and imagining possible futures, but in a super flexible way, um, has been absolutely critical to getting our campaign to where we are now. So so if to, to sort of pick maybe apart some of the some of the elements of that. So, so there's first of all, you had a big, you had a big what if question. You had a program that was about bringing people's attention to that idea in kind of creative, playful, unexpected kind of ways. You had a big, kind of a, a big narrative like that. That big, uh, a question that that um, that is able to shift people's sense of what's of what's possible. Uh, you had an you, at one point you had an invitation for people to actually put their hands in their pockets and support it and and, and to help that into being and then at, at a certain point once you'd built a certain degree of momentum then there was an invitation to the powers that be to get involved on your terms not on their terms would that be a, right and, and have I missed any kind of crucial well, elements think, or stages I think that I like I mean, in terms of saying about people getting involved, um, you know, on what terms people get involved. Um, we were in, in a very interesting meeting recently around how we launched the London National Park City, which is which we're planning to ha happen next year now in, in spring 2019. Um, and there were some government actors in the room who were basically talking about there being a vision for London. And, um, you know, I was very keen to point out that the London National Park City is not... Um, a vision for London that comes from a place or the vision for London. Um, it's that there are nine million contested visions for London. Mm. We all sort of collectively agonise in our different ways around the di many different Londons that we will co-create and that will exist on you know, multiple planes at the same time as people imagine the city in different ways and can con contribute to it in different ways. But the, the key thing here is that any contribution is a contribution. Um, and different people can contribute different things. So a really great example is that in our, in our lobbying, we, um, lobbied for the, for the mayor of London to share a name with us 
to make the majority of London physically green. Currently, 47% of London is physically green. Another 2.5% is, is blue. So, you know, the rivers, the canals, the ponds and so on. So about 0.5% of London is needed to make half of London green and blue. And one way you can do that is if everyone was to transform one square metre of grey space into green or blue space. Um, now, in, in reality, lots of people can't contribute to that for various different reasons. But it, but it's, it's symbolic of an idea where um, the only way we can really achieve that is by having policy at, um, at regional government level, um, support and action at council level, the, the intervention and planning that can happen within property developers and through business. But ultimately, it is down to literally thousands of Londoners buying into that story, imagining that, enacting that over not the next few years, over tens of years to be able to achieve that goal. And then the benefits of doing that, you know, it's not just that's a, a great story and a, a great aim, but actually the consequence of that can have big impacts in terms of people's mental health, their physical health, urban resilience around um, being resilient to climate change in terms of um, heat and water and flooding and all these other um, issues as well. So so it it's about providing a loose enough vision that is welcoming and inviting and is not so technocratic that it becomes alienating to people and making it clear how people can contribute, um, but not making people feel bad if they don't contribute as well. Mm-hmm. And so, so what if London was a national park? What, what would London being a national park make possible and enable that, that, that currently isn't, isn't the case, do you think? What can, what can it unlock? So, firstly, it won't be a national park. In, in, oh, sorry, in, a, national, a city national park. Okay. A national park city. So it's a national park that is a city. So it's landscape-scale thinking, just like you see within national parks. It's about um, better nature, better conservation, better connect, connect, connection to nature and outdoor outdoor heritage. But, you know, a striking difference is that in a, in a rural national park uh, context, you have relatively few people managing very large, expansive areas of land. In the case of London, we have, you know, 9 million people, 14,000 species um, of wildlife, 3.8 million gardens, 3,000 parks. So you have um, a much wider range of people who can um, um, be contributors to uh, the overall the overall vision. So, you know, really what we're talking about here fundamentally is radically improving people's quality of life, their health, both the bioabundance of, of wildlife in the city, but also biodiversity as well, and making the city far more resilient um, and sustainable in the things that it does. Um, and, you know, there, there are lots of ways that can happen, but fundamentally, sort of my theory of change around this is that, so, so well, as an example, so last summer I did a 600 kilometre walk through London, a giant spiral starting in the far north of the city, finishing at Temple, which is uh, one of the argued geographic centres of the city, walking with artists and activists and politicians and all kinds of people. And when you do a big walk like that through all the boroughs, you realise that, that there are, um, there are um, hundreds of brilliant, outstanding projects. And, you know, one of the reasons why we can make London a national park city is because, firstly, we can, we can celebrate all those brilliant things that have happened to, to, to make the city the way that it is, all those successes through the top-down policy of the, the royal family, the Greater London Authority, the, the Corporation of London, uh, councils, businesses, that over the last few hundred years have made the city as green and biodiverse as it is. 
but also to recognize and celebrate all the brilliant things being done over literally hundreds, uh, if not thousands of years by individual Londoners through grassroots action to make parks and gardens as green and biodiverse as they are as well. So it's first about recognizing all that's been achieved. But then just like in any national park, and it's, it's, it's important to recognize that national parks aren't there just to recognize that things are great. They actually exist because we have problems in the world. You know, so in my lifetime, the total number of wild animals on the planet has halved. One in seven species in the UK is at risk of extinction. One in seven children in London hasn't even been to a green space with their parents um, in the, the past year, despite the great benefits we know that exist from, from doing those kind of things. So, so the second part of the National Park, after celebrating, is acknowledging that we face many problems. And if you're talking about Kruger with rhinos or Virunga with gorillas or the problems that were faced you know, in terms of wolves in the United States with the creation of national, national parks there, it's the fact we have problems, which is the second reason why we need the National Park City to tackle issues like air pollution and so on. But going on a big walk like that, what, what you see is that there, there is um, so much of the energy, so much of the expertise, so many projects. But actually, those projects are often far and few between. They're not evenly spread uh, throughout the city. Um, things aren't um, organized in a, in a sophisticated way through a geographic information system in terms of mapping out where the problems are, where the solutions could fill in. Um, and I think maybe the biggest issue for me, beyond coordination and these sort of administrative bureaucratic things that people often talk about, is actually just about how do we increase demand? Because my, my, my point would be is that on the supply side, we actually have the green spaces, we have the grey spaces that are great for the peregrine falcons, we have the talent and the expertise, possibly more in London than in any other city in the world, both in terms of quantity and expertise. But what we don't have is a public who are demanding uh, better quality in terms of biodiversity. Or, you know, you just take the point of children, you know, parents going into schools and demanding because they understand the benefits of their childhood development and to their health and to education to have more outdoor learning. So what I think the National Park City can do is, is it can raise the game by raising expectations and, and communicate through city scale campaigning. Um, and when I say campaigning, I don't just mean communications i also mean support in terms of where possible providing um, um help to people whether that's um in terms of expertise or funding or you know coordination but campaigning to um to require a greater demand of um our um, of a high quality environment i think that if we raise those expectations and we have more people demanding better then then i think the supply side will fulfill itself quite nicely but at the moment, there's a lot of what I call fragoire environmentalism going on, where essentially people are saying it's good, so have it, without really making the case. And, you know, you look at libraries, and I think that, that they had a similar kind of approach. You know, it's good, so have it. But they didn't reinvent themselves or try to increase demand for libraries. And so that, I think that's one of the reasons why libraries face the problem, as well as clearly some of the ideology around our political system. But I think that's what one of the key things the National Park City can offer. It can offer increasing um, demand um, through um, opening up people's imaginations um, by daring people to dream the possible, but also offering a roadmap for people to actually then contribute to that in a in a sophisticated way. And just a practical question. I'm just thinking when you did your spiral walk around London, did you stay at different people's houses all the way around or did you nip home on the tube and then pop back to where you started from in the morning? 
you know what? I would have loved to have popped into houses. Maybe I would have done another time, but I've got a 14 year old and I <laughs> like my family. And one of the great things about being an urban explorer who's focused on London, because I do a lot of exploring in the city, yeah. is I can just commute it. I've just done so much walking and I just go to work when I'm walking uh, at nine and get back at five. Um, and I've just had an extraordinary day, but I still get to see the people I love. So. Perfect, perfect. Um, I, I just came back. I was just in in, uh, in Belgium for a few days visiting transition projects there, which were amazing. And there's a guy there I did a talk with called Olivier de Schutter, who do, who was the UN rapporteur on food for seven years. And um, in the talk, he used this really interesting term. He talked about the partner state, talking about how the role of the state was to support kind of bottom up projects, and their role was to help where they can and to remove obstacles. Uh, and to act as a partner rather than sort of top down. And I wonder how I, I understand that Sadiq Khan has been very supportive of this as as the mayor of London. I wonder if you could just say a bit about how you built and how you cultivated that relationship. Well, just to say that, I mean, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm doing a really interesting project at the moment um, in Hackney, um, separately from the London National Park City, or they're obviously professionally related. And it's interesting because if you take if you if you come from a, a social perspective in terms of um, volunteering in community, then then actually your needs and what you're trying to achieve and how you achieve it may be very different to a landscape perspective. So if we want to, for example, um, um, uh, reduce flood risk, in, in, improve the the, the length of what, the time that our sort of our sewage systems will operate for, um, so it's big challenge, serious challenges the city faces. Um, then, 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 then sometimes where the energy and the expertise is around that community action, and where where people's priorities are around community action, don't necessarily align with the problems that the landscape faces. And so, um, I agree. I think that that that. It's really important that the government does what it can to um, facilitate and, and 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 open up opportunities and give permission for people to to be activists. And a big challenge, I think, in general in London, we could talk about more if you want. I think is that essentially, if people were just given permission, they'd go and do things. But everyone feels like they're not allowed to do anything. Yeah. Um, but but um, but but sometimes these things don't overlap. You know, sometimes the the that the need from a landscape perspective is not where the energy is to deliver those landscape um, outcomes or those wildlife outcomes. Um, equally, sometimes you have lots of energy around community and landscape, um, which is almost an in, in, in unbalanced compared to where it may be needed. So I think that so the, the, the grassroots is absolutely fundamental to the success of the London National Park City, without a doubt. It's why we can do it. It's how we can make it successful. But there also needs to be government and even opening up new kinds of uh, market forces, potentially, I think, in those spaces where there is not the uh, current grassroots um, sort of efforts that you, know, you might want to see in those spaces. Maybe they will be in the future. So, so it's, it's, something that, it's something that needs to involve... It needs to involve everybody. You've done such a beautiful job of telling a narrative which appeals to... To government, to communities, to individuals, to business, to media—you know what? What are the what are the qualities? Do you think of a story? Because very often, when people come from a 
driven by a need to change something and they have still have kind of both their feet in that activist world of needing to speak in a different in a particular language which actually often alienates some people what what would you say were the key kind of qualities of the language that you've used uh, to make this feel so inclusive I think it's interesting because I think that, that quite often people separate the city out um, according to the jobs people do um, or where they work or or maybe different issues of conflict or ideologies but there are there are key things that we have in common you know whether you are whether you're on the dole or whether you're, uh, you know, an elitist banker, you may both really quite like gardening and you both want your child to go to a school where hopefully they do it, some outdoor learning maybe. Um, you may quite like to take your dog for a walk. You definitely both want better health and, and less air pollution. And, you know, it's, it's speaking to these things, you know, and but, but being open enough and flexible enough to know that different people might want to do those things in, in different ways. I think, I think that's really important. So with the, the National Park City idea, you know, you can be a, a free runner and, and love expressing your, your freedom by running over concrete and maybe bumping into a peregrine falcon and join the city that way. And that's great for your health and it's great for the city and it's politically, you know, an assertion that I think speaks to what happened at, you know, Kinder, Kinder Scout mass trespass and that is a contribution and that's great and then there are other people who are going to stand up paddling on the canal or they are growing food in their gardens and all, all these things are contributions towards this bigger vision but it's about recognizing the for me the individuals and allowing um them to be seen as individuals and see those things we have in common rather than trying to separate us out i think you know a really good example of that is around I think this kind of like challenge around property developers in that there's a lot of frustration in London specifically about property developers creating properties that feel really expensive, exclusive, that they, they, they cut people out. Quite often they look like they're building on spaces where it, people might think that the biodiversity is sort of decreasing, maybe it's going up, um, you know, who knows, depending on the particular development. But it would be completely ridiculous, I think, to have a proposition which was about transforming London's landscape. I mean, that beyond the 33 boroughs, you know, maybe beyond the M25, and to exclude um, these people who are doing some of the most transformative, cutting-edge things within the city at this time. You know, you have to include everyone. And the people that I speak to who are property developers, quite often their their endpoint for thinking about the London National Park City is actually them as an individual wanting to be part of it, rather than an organization the organization follows later the organization is not first mm. and what, one of the things that i loved uh, that, that you did was was that um beautiful map showing london without any buildings just london as as green spaces i mean i've only seen the online version not a paper version of it but even that's absolutely beautiful and i wonder to, to what extent sort of art design graphics the kind of visual side of things has, 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 how pivotal that has been to what you've been doing. It's interesting, I think people are used to seeing maybe a tube map of London and then they walk between Leicester Square and Covent Garden, which is like a, a two minute walk, but their, their view of the city is distorted by the tube map as, as, as good as the tube map is. Or, or they're, they're a driver, they're using A to Z and they can only see a page at a time or, but it's, it's all about roads 
and you know where are the where are the buildings and, and where are the gardens or or you might use Google Maps, which is then better because you have satellite view. But again, you're only seeing a little bit of the city at a time. What our maps have done, we've created different maps. Is um, I think the one that you're describing, where it shows all the gardens, all the green spaces, is it, is it reveals that half of London is very nearly half of London is is, is green, and it for many people that awakens their imaginations when they know how. Um, the, the story that we're told as children that the countryside is where all the wildlife is and that the city is terrible for wildlife. The fact that actually because of pesticides and herbicides and monoculture that sways the countryside is far worse for wildlife than big sections of cities. When people get that, quite often the penny, penny drops and there's a bit of an epiphany moment about how this can work and how we can make the city better. But it's, it's seeing that on a map that I think helps people to understand that that the city is a landscape. And one of our, one thing we did last year was we, we published the first map that's the size of a, an OS Explorer map. It's about a, a meter squared and it shows all of Greater London to beyond the M25, um, um, as a single sheet of paper. And you can see all the rivers, you can see all the parks, you can see in one place, um, um, all the major, uh, footpaths that connect the city up the Capital Ring, the London Loop, the, the Thames footpath. And rather than having to use four sheets of OS paper, modern survey paper, or, um, you know, scroll around on a screen, suddenly you start to see London as a landscape. But actually, I would challenge us to think bigger than that, because, you know, when planners are talking about urban design, they're talking about transport and housing in the context of the southeast region or as far as people are willing to commute. And if it's as far as people are willing to commute, then that means, you know, you could argue that that to some level, London stretches to Cambridge and to Bristol and to, uh, to Brighton. Uh, ecologically, for me, London certainly, you could argue, stretches in terms of influence on it and to it, to the watershed, which goes, you know, uh, um, um, miles and miles to the west, miles and miles, I think, 200 miles west, 100 miles uh, north to the south. People don't think about the city in terms of the watershed. Mm. Then you then consider beyond that, that if we could get people thinking at a landscape scale about London, to beyond that to the watershed, but also thinking about how what people consume and goes into the river could end up in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. And that London's footprint isn't just the, the, the watershed or the southeast region with its uh, spaces and influences, but actually it's everything that we consume from around the world and everything that we pollute that goes elsewhere in the world is also part of London. That we could potentially shift from, you know, over 50 or 100 years, maybe, people not just thinking about the city in terms of what they can physically see, but perhaps have a heightened awareness and a, a greater imagination of how they and their bodies, they and their house, they and their city consume the world, but also influence the world as well. Mm. I'm, not, I'm not saying we're going to get everyone there, but I think that, 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 that I would love that for there to be, there's already the London National Park City in textbooks in, in, in Britain and in China. Um, I would love to see, um, all children in London, not only doing outdoor learning um, all the time, but for this to be a really powerful London National Park City inspired curriculum that helps to bring sort of those kind of ideas into people's imagination so that the, the level of environmental literacy in 20 years from now will be one where hopefully young people are far more creative and imaginative about what the city can be, but also uh, what the world can be as well. And uh, if so, if somebody from a, a, a transition group, for example, were to ring you up and say, we, you know, we've got this big what if question, you know, we're going to look at what if our city 
produced most of its own food within its within its nearest land or if we want to be a completely energy self-sufficient city or what if we were uh, uh, you know we had a, our economy operated in a completely different way which we're starting to see in in lots of different places now but if if people came to you and said we want to do this big what if question would you give what advice would you give them for how to really ground that so you know, i think that um I'd be really tempted. So I'd be really tempted to try and take a philosophy, one that I'm, I take with the London National Park City and are really trying to just grow as much as possible, to be inspired by the environment and act for the environment, but to understand that it's, it is culture and people that will drive that change. Hmm. And, and many people will run, run alongside a canal and want the canal to be clean. Um, but not necessarily about care about nature. Um, I'm doing a project at the moment to make a, a street much greener. 95% of the people who are involved are not there because of the green, right? They're there because they want to meet their neighbours. They want an excuse to meet their neighbours. They're in, they're there for culture. Mm. Um, in terms of the campaign in Glasgow for London National Park City, they were saying, you know, how do we do this? And I was saying straight off the bat, um, you know, do your first big event at the Art College get it out of the environment, environmental movement as quickly as possible. Mm. Because the thing is that, that, and I'm not saying that the environmental movement is not involved, clearly I'm an environmentalist, but I don't think that many of the people who are trying to drive environmental change are necessarily the culture makers, which will inspire the audience, there's the scale of audience that is needed for the kinds of transformations we're talking about. Um, you know, there are lots of uh, well-known celebrities who are very good at championing individual animals, um, or, you know, those kind of things. But in terms of bringing them into a wider message um, that would actually properly protect habitat for those animals or properly make cities and towns more sustainable or, you know, create the energy transformation that, that's needed to make us all more resilient and reliable, you know, reliable. And, um, you know, where is that energy? And I think that when we think about these projects from very, very early on, getting artists, poets, uh, culture makers involved straight off, you know, and, and another great example of that, I think, is that, that, that with the London National Park City, like many environmental initiatives, you know, um, a, a challenge is pulling in different audiences and different groups of people um, who, who who wouldn't necessarily normally engage with environmental issues. So we, we truly reflect uh, the city itself. And, you know, you do get the diversity of interest and culture within issues around housing, uh, crime, you know, a range of different social issues, but you don't within the environment, but environment cuts through everything. Mm. So all I'd say is the start of any of these projects, I think, think really carefully about who, who is, who, who is fronting them. And if necessary, um, step back as quickly as possible to allow some of those cultural leaders to step forward. who can help to tell, um, that story, but using that word story in the broader sense. Mm. So that might, it might, Mapping, it might be photography, it might be images, and and and, and I think being really positive that like people people understand what the problems are, that the problems are often so big and so alienating that your imagination can't cope with it, so it kind of shuts the brain off and you don't make progress. People have to be given, people have to understand what they can do to make a contribution, especially when people are so time poor, so busy, quite often impoverished. Um, so it has to be it has to be you know, it's desirable, you know. 
Um, one question I've asked everybody uh, that I've interviewed has been, uh, if you had been elected uh, the Prime Minister at the last election and you had run on a platform of make Britain imaginative again, so you, you, you had had a sense that uh, this was a time when we needed our, our collective imagination to be at its most vigorous and vibrant and that wasn't the case and that it needed to be prioritised uh, across education and policy and uh, daily life and home life and everything. I wonder what might be some of the things you might do in your first hundred days in office. Oh, that's a really big question. You should have given me advance warning of that one. <laughs> that's, a, that's a fun question. So the first thing I would do is I would very quickly, rapidly prototype an imagineering conference, uh, confluence for, for the UK um, on day one or two to find out what other people think would be good answers to that question um, and pull all those ideas together. But I think that, um, you know, I used to be a geography teacher. One of the first things I'd say is probably you know, about what can happen in schools and colleges. Um, just just rethinking, actually, the way that assessment works. You know, that, that wouldn't bring transformation overnight, but having less pressure in that school system and allowing more creativity and with, within our young people would be, you know, transformative, I think. On a street level, you know, let's just flip all that signage that says you can't do stuff in places. Make it really clear to people the empty canvases of what they can do in places. I think that would, if we could open up the landscape so that people really understood the necessary environmental controls and limits that are needed for places, but just really free up the landscape so that people can, can take ownership of places and, and do things on outside their front doors, on their streets. I think would, 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 would create a sense of could really empower people and give people the agency to do things in their neighbourhoods that would then unlock other opportunities as well. Um, so I'd do that as well. Um, I think that I, that's probably what I'd do across the policy spectrum, really. I think that I'd want to make sure that we had really tight controls around the environment, around where they're really needed. But I'd also want to really look at ways in which we can make it far clearer how people could just go and go and do stuff. And that's a very broad answer. No, no, it's great. I've, it, it's been um, it's, it's an incredible range of answers. Uh, one of my favourite ones that's that a guy called Martin Shaw, who's a mythologist guy down here, said was, I would switch the national grid off for three weeks <laughs> and let everybody see what it's like when they can see the stars and when it's dark and everything. I did, I did have to say, well, you know, that is every politician's worst nightmare, that if the grid goes off for more than four hours, the whole thing unravels. But he was kind of insistent that was what he would do. <laughs> so I don't think I'd vote for him. I think there's a way to 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 bring people together, bring people together to ask people that question at a and I, you know at a local level. But that is not just about neighbourhood planning, but is genuinely about asking people what they would like and what they would like to do. But dare I say, having a small amount of budget there for those communities to use, um, even just a small amount. I think people, people to push against and pivot off and to negotiate, maybe collectively agonise about how they use this money. Mm. But so this ain't really tangible. So whether that's a physical space, whether that's a little bit of money, uh, 
um, something that can pull people together around something that everyone can imagine how they could potentially influence. Um, and if you could do that in every neighbourhood, it would be really transformative. Mm. Um, but I don't know what exactly that thing is, but I think it's the, the key thing is about having something that people can, can, something tangible that people can touch and allowing them the opportunity to have a say over it. Mm-hmm. So just so, so that was all my questions, I guess, just whether you had any last thoughts about um, imagination and how to invite imagination and, and hold space for imagination that I haven't asked you the right question for. I think that um, that in my personal imagination, it, it's been it, it's been really important to have a combination of imagination and determination. You know, imagination is really important. Um, I'm kind of plagued by imaginative ideas, you know, literally like plagued to have to sort of write things down and have lists and, and quite often it's, it's the best ideas that kind of worm their way into my mind and sort of come back again. And if they sort of stick there, then I know that, that I probably need to do something about them. And, um, but, but without determination, you know, without, um, determination and then collaboration to actually make something of them then you know they're just dreams really mm. so i think we need i think that that we need people to dream the possible we have to dream big we have to dream what, what what's doable but that imagination has to be to be coupled with collaboration and determination mm. um otherwise it's kind of beautiful but you know in a box